I'm Agnes Frimston. And I'm Ben Horton. And you're listening to Undercurrents, the Chatham House podcast. Ben, hello. Hello, how are you? I am good, how are you? Yeah, very well, very well. Um, enjoying this, this lovely cold weather that we've been having. I know, although now it's spring. The snow has cleared. Spring has sprung. There are some daffodils hanging around. I saw a sparrow today. A sparrow. Got very excited. Oh well, yeah. What have you been up to this week, Ben? You've been a, you've been on holiday. Yeah, I've been in Berlin, just seeing some friends, and it was looking at uh, some history. It was lovely looking at some history. Nice. Um, learning exactly learning, as we do. It's an educational visit. As much as I learned a lot about excellent German brunch. Um, <laughs> Did you? What's your favourite brunch? <laughs> I went to just they're just very good at eggs. You know, just excessively good at eggs. So while I've been swanning around the continent, what have you been up to? Oh, there was a great event at Chatham House on how to prevent World War Three. And it's already begun. I heard. Nineteen ninety four. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Um, what else? Working on the next issue of the world today and our big June July issue, which is gonna be an under thirty fives issue. So everyone, everyone under thirty five. Everybody everyone including illustrators. Mm. Except for Alan Phillips, the editor, who probably won't mind me saying is not under thirty five. <laughs> <laughs> but other than him Everyone involved in the issue will be multiples of thirty five. <laughs> <laughs> oh that's harsh. That's very harsh. Sorry, Alan. <laughs> And then minus some years, yes. Anyway, who did you speak to this week? Oh, this week uh, I spoke to Champa Patel, who is the head of the Asia programme, sorry, the Asia Pacific programme at Chatham House. It's a new thing, it's fine. It's It's just changed. And we spoke about her recent expert comment on the Philippines and Duterte's drug war. But you spoke to my boss. I did. I spoke to Andrew Dorman, who is Professor of International Security at King's in London, but also the editor of International Affairs Journal. The World Today and International Affairs United. Exactly. Two Chatham House Things didn't get too heated, not too much contentious chat. No, we didn't have too many rows, okay, which is good. good, um, good. No, and we spoke about UK defence policy and European defence in the light of Brexit and many other things. Oh, interesting. But first, let's have a listen to you and Champa talking about the Philippines. So now I'm joined by Champa Patel, the head of the Asia-Pacific programme at Chatham House, to talk about her recent expert comment titled, In examining the Philippines' drug war, the ICC takes a positive but challenging step. Champa, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So I'd like to start off um, first by sort of taking us back to 2016 when the Philippines president Rodrigo Duterte was elected, won a landslide victory and then embarked on this policy to counter the drugs trade in the Philippines. Could you tell us some more about that? I think the first thing to notice, it was a key pillar of his campaign, is that he would have this so-called war against drugs. So he essentially campaigned and won on that promise. And it was very much about, you know, the drugs trade within the Philippines. The prevalence rate is very high, affects many communities, particularly the poor. So it's certainly an election winner in the sense that this was an issue that impacted on many people. People feel very strongly about this issue across party lines and wanted to see something be done. Now, I think what's interesting to note is the tactic that he's taken forward, 
which has essentially been to allow the police to do whatever they want to do with complete impunity, has been sanctioned from the very top of government. So what you have is Duterte essentially saying, I don't care what you do, shoot, kill, maim, uh, you'll be absolutely protected by me. And it's extraordinary to think that a leader of a country can go out there and say this and basically give blanket coverage uh, to anybody taking forward these kind of actions. So Human Rights Watch has estimated that just short of 4,000 people have died at the hands of police between June and September 2016. But there's a much wider issue, which is unidentified gunmen killing thousands more, bringing the death total to about 12,000. Now, if you compare that to just 68 people that died between January and June 2016, it's clear there's been an exponential increase in the amounts of people who are dying. So it's hard not to see this as related to Duterte's rhetoric. And what you see is a president basically allowing these actions to happen with complete impunity. What has been the uh, impact of this policy? Like, would you say, taking aside obviously this considerable and shocking death toll, has there been a knock on effect on the drugs trade in the Philippines? Is it too soon to tell? I think what we're seeing is the wider ripple effect is more of fear. So you have tens of thousands of people coming forward because they're worried that they're going to be targeted or they're going to be persecuted. So there's certainly a wider effect that we're seeing. In terms of impact on the drug trade itself, what is clear is that it's targeted mainly poor, impoverished communities. So I think the broader question here is, in targeting the low-level street drug sellers, are you really tackling the structural drugs problems in the Philippines? Because what we're not seeing is the same attention on drugs cartels, for example. Are these policies ultimately dealing with the drug issue that many, many people find difficult to deal with? And arguably, you know, evidence has shown that the approach that's more likely to have impact is to rehabilitate drug offenders. It's to work with those who are addicted to drugs in order to wean them off them so that they can lead more enriching, fruitful lives. And certainly from an international law perspective, there's nothing that's going to say it's okay to kill people with absolute impunity. I just wondered, I wondered if we could drill down on why drugs was a policy priority for Duterte in the first place. Thinking about the UK election cycle, the priorities often come back to the health of the economy, the NHS. But in the Philippines, what are the dynamics in elections? Is is the war on drugs actually a big hitter with the voters? I think it's twofold. One is that Duterte had a history of, you know, being seen to be somebody who's a strong man on this issue, dealt with the issue very well when he was mayor of Davao. So it's something that he was known to have dealt with. And I think the drug situation in the Philippines cuts across many things. It cuts across the health of communities, local economies, the national economy, security, stability at the local level. So it's something that affects people's lives in a myriad number of ways. So it's seen as something that's very important and close to people. So in that sense, it's not the only issue he won the election on, but it's something that he was seen to be a strong champion on and somebody that would take, you know, action on this issue. And is that reputation, has it been upheld by the policy that he's executed? Has it made him more popular or less popular? I mean, I think the interesting thing about Duterte is just how popular he is. So it's certainly waned a little bit. There has been some opposition to the policies and the impact of them since it was rolled out. But it's still striking to see that whether it's, you know, across the political spectrum, he's still a hugely popular figure. And I think it's because people were so tired of dealing with the effects of drugs in their communities that they feel strong action is needed. 
But the question is, in the long term, is this sustainable? I mean, this is not a policy that can be rolled on forever, right? At some point, you run out of people to kill, if nothing else. Um, but it doesn't actually deal with the root causes of why you know people are selling drugs, people are addicted to drugs. It doesn't provide long-term solutions. So the policy is short-sighted, not to mention illegal. So in that respect, I'm not sure that it is a policy that genuinely meets uh, the needs of what communities want to see eradicated. I'd like to turn now just to the reception that the international community has given Duterte during his time in office. And um, specifically on this policy, I mean, you've mentioned already that from an international law perspective, it kind of has no legal basis. But has that been called out on the on the world stage and by whom? Within Southeast Asia, not so much. So you have the EU that's been critical. But I think what you have is, you know, it's not just Trump in the White House. You have strongman politics across Southeast Asia, whether it's Hun Sen in Cambodia, Duterte in the Philippines or Modi in India. So he's part of a group of people who deploy, you know, aggressive rhetoric, aggressive action, strongman tactics. So he's part of a trend that we're seeing in general across the world at the moment. In the expert comment that you wrote for the Chatham House website, you talk about a step that the International Criminal Court has has taken. Could you tell us what they have done and what the significance of that is? So in February of this year, the ICC, the International Criminal Court, said that they was going to open a preliminary examination into both the Philippines and also Venezuela. Now, a preliminary examination uh, essentially is going to only investigate something very, very narrow, and that is extrajudicial killings, alleged extrajudicial killings that have taken place in the context of the war against drugs. So the actual application that was put forward by lawyers from the Philippines argued for a broader examination over a much longer period of time, but the ICC has taken a much narrower remit to looking at what's occurred. How was that received in the Philippines? Has it gone down badly? I think it depends who you speak to. There are many human rights advocates and civil society groups and victims who feel finally their voices are going to be heard. This is important to them because they feel like nobody is listening within the Philippines. They have no domestic remedies and they have essentially nowhere to go. You know, a, a real sense of futility that their situation is going to be taken seriously by either the police who are the perpetrators of some of this violence or the courts who are unable to, you know, prosecute any of the few cases that have gone to court. So I think for that group of people, this is a very, very positive step. And then you'll have others like Duterte, who kind of oscillates a little bit. On the one hand, he'll say the court is useless, it's hypocritical, why are they looking at me? They're not looking at Myanmar. And then he'll also welcome it. So he'll say, fine, investigate me. I haven't done anything wrong. I can show that whatever I'm doing is fully justified. Um, on you know he'll say I'm happy to cooperate with the investigation but then a few days ago he said I don't want anybody to cooperate with this investigation so I think there's a range of views about this depending on who you are within the Philippines What's the timeline? What's the next step for the ICC? If this preliminary investigation were to find some wrongdoing what action can they take? Well I think you know, there's several challenges here to overcome before we can really think about next steps because a preliminary examination doesn't, it doesn't decide on the merits of a case. What it does is decide, is there enough information here? Is there enough evidence here to actually do a full investigation? So it really is only the very first step in the process. But I think there are a number of challenges that 
are still to be overcome before we can say that it's been successful. And the first we've talked about, which is the credibility of the court within the administration and how they seem to oscillate in terms of seen as hypocritical, useless, but something they're going to cooperate or then they say they're not going to cooperate with it. So I think that's one. The second challenge is procedural. The biggest challenge I think that exists is around complementarity. So in theory, the ICC should only intervene or take forward action if there are no domestic remedies available. Now, the Philippines is one of the few countries in Asia that actually takes the crimes of crimes against humanity, genocide, war crimes, and has domesticated that into their national law. So it's one of the few countries that has actually done that. So arguably, the legal framework does exist within the country. But in practice, is it likely that they're going to use that? I think there are huge question marks. Because even the few cases that have gone to trial of police officers, not single prisoners being convicted. So one is having the legal framework, but two is then having the will to actually prosecute and see cases through. The same law also states that the president enjoys constitutional immunity. And this raises a fundamental contradiction in the Philippines case, which is what do you do when the law that should protect you also protects the president, who is the very person who is enabling this to happen. So I think there's still a case to be made that, you know, even though the domestic legal framework exists, you could argue that there's still no possibility of domestic remedies within the Philippines. And I think the final challenge is expectations. The preliminary examination on Colombia opened in 2004 and is still ongoing. They are notoriously slow. So, you know, for people who want swift access to justice, there are no guarantees that this will conclude quickly and there are no guarantees that it will actually go forward into a full-blown investigation. So I think there are a number of steps here that still need to be overcome. But that doesn't make it any less of a positive step forward. It just means that there's still a long way to go before we can say that this is truly going to be a pathway to justice for people. Hopefully when you're next on the podcast, there'll be some update. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. I'm here with Andrew Dorman, who is the editor of International Affairs, but also Professor of International Security at King's. Thank you so much for talking to us today, Andrew. Delighted to be here. We obviously, we, we sit quite close to each other on the fourth floor of Chatham House, but we don't have a huge amount to do with each other, do we, really? No, two different journals. So it's good to good <laughs> force ourselves down into the basement to talk to each other. <laughs> exactly. We're actually deep rivals. Obviously, you are an expert on security and UK defence, and this isn't something that I know a huge amount about, really. I feel like we haven't really talked about it since Iraq and Afghanistan. But obviously there are quite regular defence reviews. When when was the last one and what came out of that? We had a defence and security review in 2015 under the previous administration. Are we in the process of having a national security review? And what's been very unusual is that the government's just announced that they're taking the defence part out of the national security review that they're currently undertaking, which for most commentators, myself included, sounds if we're being polite, novel. It just doesn't seem at all sensible to talk about the whole broad brush element of security, but exclude defence. So we've got now a process by which we've got a security review going on and a defence review that will follow on. So what is security without defence? Might be a stupid question, but what does that mean? 
that's what we're all trying to find out, to be honest, because it's if we think of all the variety of challenges to the United Kingdom at the moment, whether it be from terrorism, whether it be from migration flows, whether we think it's from whether Russia is a threat, whether it's cyber, the military play a part in all this. Even if we think about it in terms of flood relief in the UK and things like that, the UK has a, has a role, military has a role to play in this. So by excluding the armed forces from this, we're in a state of confusion and you can see uh, a lot of commentators are very uh, saying you know, this doesn't make sense. There was uh, some advisors going before the Joint Committee on National Security Strategy within Parliament saying we shouldn't be doing this. But there are a few MPs out there who think this is a great because they're assuming that Defence can finally get its act together. So is this a financial thing then? Is it that Defence is the most expensive bit of that review or...? It is. It's basically, it is finance. The, the, the two things come together. One is there's a realisation that since 2015, a lot of the challenges that they identified in 2015, whether it be terrorism, Russia, etc., they're still there. In fact, they've become worse in many respects. They've become nearer, more complex, and a need to deal with these challenges as quickly as possible. And we have Brexit in the background, which will have a massive impact upon defence and security. At the same time, there's no more money. So whilst the government thought it, it could pay for the defence toys and people that it wanted to in 2015, there's no realisation that there's a massive black hole in the defence budget and they're not sure how to deal with it. So they're just not looking at it, basically? Uh, they are looking at it. One of the reasons that the government seems to have argued for taking defence out is to buy themselves another six months to try and work out how to pay for this. And what we've seen is the new defence minister, uh, Gavin Williamson, is basically having a debate with the Treasury about whether he can get more resources from the Treasury. And not surprisingly, the, the Chancellor is saying, uh, we have no money, uh, and there are other areas of government spending which we'd prioritise in its place. Yeah, I can I can imagine that must be quite frustrating for commentators as well who are looking at this. Uh, do you think that, without naming names, but this uh, government are aware of what a modern military needs to look like now? I think, to be fair to the government, they're identifying a lot of the challenges and trying to understand them. Equally, they're dealing with armed forces that themselves are inherently conservative and, and therefore don't adapt themselves that quickly to the change environment. And it's difficult for the armed forces because if you want to put money into new areas, logically you're taking money out of old areas. And so we're in a position where they wanted to hang on to the old things whilst having more resources going to the new things. And that's just not working. Mm. What do you think the next pressure on the armed forces will be in Britain? The moment, the big pressure on the armed forces is literally money, that basically um, they can't afford to pay for the equipment or find the people to do the jobs they want to do. So we've had jokes about aircraft carriers with no aircraft and aircraft carriers without a crew. And the truth is that both the Air Force and the Navy in particular are shorter people. Um, Their personnel levels are insufficient to do what the government expects of them. Whilst at the same time, the Army is struggling to recruit people. So we have an Army which has money to pay for people who can't recruit them and the Navy getting rid of Royal Marines because it needs to reduce its Royal Marines so it can pay for other members of the Navy. And why is recruitment such an issue, do you think, for the Army? One of the problems the Army's had with um, recruitment is they contracted it out to a company and to centralise it and that contract is not working well. It would be the polite way of putting it. There's been lots of uh, questions in, in Parliament and from the Defence Committee about this and the Ministry of Defence is not happy. It's taken up to a year for people who've shown an interest in joining the army to sense get processed to be told whether they can or not join the armed forces. And the problem you've got then is if people are having to wait for a year, they're, they're going and doing something else instead. So they're 
there's always going to be a time in terms of security clearance, in terms of medical side of things, but it shouldn't take a year to work out whether someone can join the army for, to, to, to train to be in the infantry. And there have been recently a couple of new adverts, haven't there? Recruitment adverts, which have slightly changed the tone of the recruitment and have caused a bit of a fuss in some in some areas. It has, particularly... It's interesting, the armed forces are trying to reach out. There's acknowledgement that their traditional recruitment base, which, particularly for the army, has been, to be honest, is white males. It's largely been. Um, and their realisation that to reflect society more widely, but also to tap into those other areas where population there is population growth as opposed to decline, they've got to reach out. Mm. And to be fair, they've been very good in terms of being far more inclusive. So they're trying to reach out. And to reach out to other communities, they're having to try slightly change their tone. So they want to emphasise how they can embrace and welcome people in rather than put up barriers. You know, a number of people have said, well, this is unpicking and undermining what they've always done in the past about being the best and things like that. But it's not mutually exclusive and it's, it's, it's rebranded. It's a bit like if you think about TV adverts from the 1970s. They were in a particular style for a particular audience. We've all moved on since then. So you've actually got to deal with changing audiences to bring people in. From my understanding, the UK forces are linked very closely to other bits of Europe, especially France. How do you think that's going to develop when, as Britain leaves the EU? There's a number of things on defence that Brexit is going to put under significant challenges. The United Kingdom's principal military alliance is a member of NATO. Mm-hmm which is a transatlantic security organisation. Within that, there's an agreement within the European Union that it can potentially borrow NATO assets if it's a EU-led mission as opposed to a NATO-led mission under what's known as the Bernard Plus arrangements. And the basic assumption is that the commander of that such a mission would be the Deputy Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, which is a British post at the moment. Now, clearly, once the UK leaves the European Union, the European Union is not going to want a commander of an EU mission that isn't an EU member. Mm-hmm. So there's a logic for potentially that the UK may lose that position and its, its influence within NATO. So there's a whole question mark about commands and who has, who has control. There's a really interesting question that if there is a EU-led mission into the Balkans or wherever, how does the UK commit itself? It's almost certain that the UK would be involved because challenges to the European Union, challenges to Europe are absolutely key to the United Kingdom. So how do British forces integrate? How does the British government have a say over their use? How do they fit into the command chain? These have got to be resolved. If you have more centralised European command chains, they need to think about how they bring on board forces that aren't members of the European Union. There's also a much wider issue over the whole defence industrial base. I mean, we're looking at the whole issue of borders, Northern Ireland, there's a whole issue of Northern Ireland and, and the Republic. But there's also the issue with the defence industrial base because a lot of defence companies, like a lot of industry, are going across the European borders without any form of border control, without any charging and tariffs. Post-Brexit, no-one knows how that would work. So whilst you can... We've seen examples, for example, of the minis that are produced in my home city of Oxford include engines that have been assembled elsewhere from parts that partly been produced in the UK and elsewhere and they're brought together. It's the same on the, on the military side. If you think, for example, of every Airbus aircraft, both the A400M, which is a military aircraft, but also every civilian aircraft, all those that are built in Europe have wings assembled in the United Kingdom. How do those wings get across those borders? And for a lot of defence industries, 
they've got sites on both sides of the channel. It's not clear how this will work out, and a lot of defence industry is really worried about what will happen. God, it's complicated, isn't it? Before the referendum on Brexit, there was a lot of discussion about this idea of a European army. Yes. And that was, I think, quite a big part of the of the Leave campaign, was saying how much they did not want this. How realistic did you think that was, and where do you think that came from? Well, there's the, the general, if you go back to the, the, the European vision of, of this, you know, United States of Europe, that the logic of that in its extremists is a united army of some form. In reality, for most countries, will not want to surrender their armed forces. The French are not going to surrender their army. You know, the French use their armed forces for a variety of different missions, often in conjunction with the UK across the globe. They're not going to surrender their armed forces. So whilst there's been moves towards greater collaboration, integrations of some capabilities and forces, and that's really quite logical, I don't think we're going to see one European army. And bear in mind, one of the real problems the European Union will have, when you look at it in terms of defence and security, is a number of its EU members are actually neutrals. So no one quite knows how they're going to operate. So the idea that the EU might become a much more of a significant military power when some of its countries are actually neutrals and will not actually ever want to deploy it is contradictory. Yeah, so not only are they neutrals, but I think the idea that Germany would ever lead on a defence mission within Europe seems unlikely. You know, it was always largely France. I think it's politically difficult for them. Yes. So the, the, the logic is... The two lead military powers in Europe are the United Kingdom and France. So one of the things we're increasingly seeing is is much more bilateral and localised arrangements. We've seen that with the Nordic group, with the Anglo-French arrangements, the Visegrad group. So whilst we talk about the European Union and we talk about NATO, a lot of the European defence collaboration is at a much more localised level. In Norway, for example, the UK and the Dutch have an amphibious force that they've been working together since 1976 to reinforce Norway against posed by Russia. So it's much more localised and the institutions in some respects are just fig leaves at the top. Do you think that our defence systems are quite predicated still on this idea of an invasion of the next war being Russia invading Britain? I don't think they've ever been predicated on Russia actually invading Britain. The, The UK has always been, and we've seen this as UK foreign policy for hundreds of years, that the UK does not want a single state to dominate Europe. Mm. And the UK has always been concerned about a balance of power in Europe, a peaceful Europe. So basically it can trade with Europe and it can trade beyond Europe. So the fear of Russia, which we saw from forty-five onwards, was about Russian dominance of Europe. And the fight and why the UK deployed so many forces into Germany in particular during the Cold War was about potentially deterring the Russians and, and if need be fighting that Third World War in, in Germany rather than over the skies of the United Kingdom. Yeah. I thought it might be a bit fun to talk about the journal, even though obviously I'm giving you guys airtime. We're the rivals. Um, <laughs> well, we compliment each other. <laughs> we do, we do. I'm joking, I'm joking. So obviously International Affairs comes out six times a year um, and it's you know a very prestigious academic journal. How do you commission? How do you decide what you're covering and how far in advance do you plan these things? Most of the pieces that come into us are coming from authors from across the sphere of IR and they submit and we look and we take the best pieces. Mm-hmm. Is the honest answer. We look to see what is the best pieces within the space we've got and we're looking both in terms of the quality, what they're producing, what they're writing about, 
what's going to push the field forward. We cover the whole range of international relations. Of our six editions, two are always special editions every year. And what we're trying to do with those, on the one hand, we're either looking, generally one of them is either on an issue. So last year we had one looking at contested borders. The other one is generally either on a state or an area, so we sort of a, a degree of a geographical focus. Um, so last year we had one in India. But this year, January edition is on liberal internationalism. You know, is the liberal world order coming to an end or not? Mm -hmm. And it's been a fascinating piece, fantastic result. Because it's at the heart of our debates. Mm. And it's interesting, we had a launch here for members and it was full of not only PhD students wanting to find out from about liberal internationalism, but also investment bankers. Mm. Because it, like everybody else, they want to know about what's going to happen in the future. Mm. We look for issues, we look for areas. With the next special edition in July to plug it is on Japanese foreign policy. Wow. Interesting contested area at the moment. Yeah. Do you have any areas that you find difficult to cover or commission on? We have a number of areas which we'd love to have much more. Yeah. We, we haven't had so much on international political economy. Mm -hmm. We'd like more on climate. We would like more on um, global health. We'd like more on Africa, if you're looking at areas. We'd also like to, and we're trying to reach out to communities whose voices we're not hearing. Mm -hmm. We're very aware that, that there, and we, like a lot of journals, are want to encourage uh, women to, to submit far more and put pieces into us. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we had a great year last year in terms of the gender balance. It's a, it's a constant battle for us. It's a constant battle for a lot of journals. The relative number of submissions do not represent the proportions within the profession. Uh, so I would like to hear the female voice much more. We'd also like to hear from authors based in Africa, Asia Pacific. We're not hearing quite so many of them. We're having a lot of authors based in the UK, in Europe, North, North America, Oceania. There are lots of other voices we'd love to hear from. Well, luckily, because we've seen the stats for this podcast, we've got a reach, so guys should get in touch if you're listening from Africa. Always welcome. We need new pieces. <laughs> um, I've got one final question for you, Andrew. What's your favourite piece of military equipment? <laughs> is it an amphibious vehicle? Are I you, don't think are I've you got a, a soft spot for a, you know, a great helicopter? I haven't got a favourite piece of military equipment. You haven't equipment. got a favourite no, piece of military equipment? No. Well, fair enough. I think mine's an amphibious vehicle because they just yeah. seem so pointless. Actually, my actually my favourite piece of equipment that, that was absolutely pointless was what's known as, it was called the Davy Crockett Mortar. It was built in the 1950s by the American. It was a nuclear mortar as, as it was armed with a nuclear warhead. The only problem with it was the explosive radius of that warhead was greater than the range of the warhead. <laughs> so, and let me say, that is probably my favourite ever weapon. That's the, phenomenal. So How anybody who ever fired it was automatically dead. <laughs> oh my god, that's okay. That's well, a great, that's a great one. Yeah, it's yes. good to learn and grow, I suppose, isn't it? Learn, learn and grow. And grow. <laughs> well, Andrew, thank you so much for coming to speak to us. That's been really interesting. Thank you. And that's it for this episode of Undercurrents. If you liked what you listened to, you can read more in the links provided below. If you're feeling generous, do leave us a review on iTunes as it helps other people find us too. And follow Chatham House on Twitter, at Chatham House. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with some new interviews. But in the meantime, I'm Ben Horton. I'm Agnes Frimston. And you've been listening to Undercurrents. <laughs>